you want to finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, Economy is in the house. Awesome. Welcome to Yaval Levin, a man of uh, many titles, <laughs> prolific author, uh, but uh, recently moved to uh, the American Enterprise Institute, where the, you're the chair of about 20 different departments. Tell us what your official title at AEI is and what you're doing. <laughs> I think my title is uh, Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at AEI. Uh, basically, I, I run a piece of the institution that thinks about the, the health and integrity of American institutions. And you have also migrated. Uh, you, were you the founder of National Affairs? Yes, I started National Affairs about 10 years ago, and uh, it came to AI with me. So it's still a freestanding publication, but AI is our publisher now. So I was, uh, I was sitting there in Congress about a week ago. The time flies in the coronavirus crisis. And a few things happened, and I immediately thought of you, and I wanted to get your take on it. And one was this, if you remember, there's sort of kind of three uh, coronavirus bills that have been passed. The, the 1.0 was this $8.3 billion direct appropriation to the healthcare system. Pretty much everybody voted for it. I voted for it. 2.0 is where things got a little bit interesting. Uh, for about a week, Pelosi was shadow boxing with the White House and with McConnell, and there was a small group of people negotiating this bill. The, uh, those of us who are just mere rank and file members of Congress were awaiting the white smoke to emerge from the chimney to tell us that there was a bill. Right. We finally, we got leaked texts of various versions. We got final text of that bill at around um, uh, 12.03 a.m. on Saturday morning, technically. And it's something I've never seen in my three years in Congress. About 15 minutes later, they called the vote. Wow. No debate. There was no chance to amend it. And all of a sudden, this massive bill, this wasn't the $2 trillion 3.0, but it probably was north of $500 billion. We were expanding sick leave, FMLA leave, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Not only passed magically in the wee hours of Saturday morning, then we all left town Saturday morning. And on Monday, even more magically, a 90-page technical corrections bill that substantively changed parts of the bill passed. And I spent my time thinking, what would you all, what, what does this say about Congress or what would you all say this says about Congress? You know, it's a funny thing. On the one hand, you can look at this crisis and say, here's Congress rising to the occasion of a national emergency. Who says they can't get things done on a bipartisan basis? Here they are passing all these huge bills on a bipartisan basis, really negotiating sometimes. On the other hand, this is the only way that Congress works now, is in an emergency under pressure where members don't really get to legislate. They vote up or down, and they're under enormous pressure to vote up and not down because the sky will fall if they don't. And so, although it's true that Congress in the past, uh, what, three and a half weeks has moved three significant pieces of bipartisan legislation, it's also true that it's not functioned as a legislature in the course of that period. And um, both the, the, the modern virtues and the modern vices of Congress are on display there at the same time. I think there are more vices than virtues. And I also think that what happened right after the enormous third bill passed, the, the big uh, $2 trillion financial rescue package or whatever you want to call it, Congress just left town right away 
with no clear intention of coming back and without having made arrangements to be able to work, whether that's remote voting, I don't know what you think about that, or even just oversight hearings, which you can do remotely, none of that is gonna happen. And Congress basically treats itself as existing to enable executive action. Uh, and once that's done, that's it, out of town. Um, I think there is real cause for worry there. I'm glad that the bills passed. I would have voted for them on net. Um, but this is a strange way for Congress to understand its role. And I think what we're seeing on display is not Congress rising to the occasion exactly so much as making the most of its own weakness and doing what it can. What's interesting, the other part, uh, just about how this relates to enabling the executive, in the afternoon before the vote happened later that evening or early Saturday morning, you know, there's a lot of conservative objections to the draft of the bill or what we thought was in the draft of the bill. Ultimately, I think it's fair to say what got a lot of Republicans to vote for it was this promise that a lot of the deficiencies would be fixed later on by uh, Department of Treasury regulations, yeah. through this implicit promise that the executive branch would fix known deficiencies in the bill. Should we think of that as sort of a modern pathology in Congress? Has it always been thus where, you know, you know, legislation's imperfect and we'll find out what's in the bill after we pass it and fix it via executive yeah. fiat? Well, no, certainly it hasn't always been thus. I think this is a 21st century problem in, in most respects. Um, and the idea that the way to make yourself feel better about it is to say it, it won't be carried out the way it's written anyway, um, obviously isn't healthy. Now, look, this is a national emergency. It actually is. And it is part of prudence to tell the difference between a crisis and normal times. And, you know, there is a need for a certain kind of, uh, of, of energy and speed in a crisis. But I think Congress also has to take itself seriously and establish ways both to keep an eye on what the executive is doing and to give more direction and instruction in the work that it does. I, I'm of the view that Congress has an important ongoing oversight role here in, in handling this crisis to allow the public to know more than they're gonna know from the administration, to keep an eye on how these things are getting carried out. I mean, you just appropriated $2 trillion and basically, it's just all going to get thrown out the door in the hopes that people pick it up who actually need it. And some of that's going to happen, and it'll be useful. Some of it won't. And right now, Congress is not set up to do anything to make sure that more of it works than doesn't. Um, and I think there's really, there's just a sense, you know, the, you always hear the story that at the beginning of the Civil War, for more than four months, Lincoln had to run everything on his own because Congress was out of session. And there, the trains weren't running and there was no way to get in. And so there was no Congress. What's happening here now is it, it's as if on purpose, Congress is creating that situation. It could be more engaged. It could be more involved, but it's chosen to get out of town and leave it to the president to uh, make every decision. And I just think there needs to be more of a shared responsibility given the nature of our system. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. And you wrote a piece that was very influential. Uh, I believe the title was something along the lines of, Congress is weak because its members want it to be weak. Well, first of all, are you, where are you right now? And how, how, how are you hunkered down in the midst of this coronavirus crisis? <laughs> well, I'm home. I, I live in the, in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. in Silver Spring. So I'm in a little basement office with a whole bunch of books. Um, it's like a kind of uh, mini library here. And uh, I, I try to work, but I'm also trying to help my kids uh, not forget how to read. 
and uh, you know, my wife works too, and so uh, we're all home and all trying to make something of it. Are you so you're running a homeschool academy right now? More or less of the world's worst homeschool academy. Yes. I would. I mean, I, if I could choose, you know, anybody to run a homeschool academy, you would be at or near the top of my list. I would I'm be mistaken. Not sure that's good judgment, but uh, you know, we're testing that out here, and I wouldn't say that so far uh, it's confirming your instinct. All right. Uh, well, let's. Okay. So you wrote this piece uh, to dig into that phenomenon where Congress has willingly surrendered a lot of its power. Take us through a little bit, or at least your hypotheses as to how we arrived at this moment where, and I think this was my kind of biggest realization coming in as a new idealistic member of Congress three years ago, just how disempowered you are, particularly if you're not a member of leadership. And there's a lot of times I have my constituents calling me and they're saying, you need to do X, Y, Z. I said, I wish I had the ability to do X, Y, Z, um, but yeah. the institution has become so deformed. So take us through your working theory about how we arrived at the present moment. Well, there are a number of things going on. I mean, I, I would say, first of all, we as conservatives tend to talk a lot about um, aggressive hyperactivity on the part of the courts and of executive agencies and presidents. And I think what we often miss in telling that story is that those are functions of a, an intentional underactivity on the part of the legislative branch, where Congress chooses not to be in the driver's seat um, in our system of government and instead empowers particularly executive agencies with broad mandates that tell them in general what ought to be done, but not specifically how, and leaves it to them to make a lot of decisions and then leaves it to the courts to clean up the mess that results from that. And so we do have hyperactive executive agencies and courts, but a lot of that is caused by an unwillingness of members of Congress to take responsibility for the hard decisions involved in legislating. Now, members of Congress are ambitious politicians, right? They're, I think James Madison was right about that. They're always going to be people of ambition. The question is, how can it be that they don't want the power they could have? And I think part of the answer to that is that they want something else, that the way that a lot of ambitious people now think about politics has to do with a desire to play an active role in the kind of theater of our national politics that's a much more performative role it's much more about channeling the frustrations of their voters and expressing anger and, uh, and, and dissatisfaction rather than acting from the inside. Members want to be prominent outsiders sharing in the critique that their voters have of the system. When they're actually elected to be prominent insiders embodying the system and hopefully also actually addressing those problems that their voters are angry about. Um, and a lot of members now are just more comfortable in the performative role and would rather leave it to other people, especially to the executive branch, to actually govern. And they see themselves, like everybody else in our politics, as just commenting on what the president's doing and not doing. Um, that's part of it. I think other parts of it have to do with structural problems that are rooted in that same set of incentives, but that make things worse. I, I think that, that transparency has gone way too far, for example, in the work of the Congress. Transparency is valuable up to a point. Uh, it's important to know what our politicians are doing on our behalf. But now in Congress, there just aren't enough deliberative spaces, places where you can talk to one another, bargain, negotiate, come to understand one another's priorities. Everything is on display, and that means that everybody's putting on a show I think there are some mistakes made in the same direction around campaign finance reform since the 1970s. 
that have made it very hard for members to really take responsibility. And the sum total of all that is that Congress doesn't want to be in charge, and therefore it isn't. So what I always struggle with in this debate is, to, some, to what extent is Congress still doing what it's always done, albeit imperfectly, which is to say reflecting the divide in American society, right? And in some sense, giving American citizens what they want. In other words, you know, you could take a random sample of Americans and they say, yeah, Congress sucks and, you know, throw all the bums out and this and that and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, incumbents tend to win their reelection. Uh, people like it when you go on MSNBC or Fox News and you start throwing bombs. I, my head gets clouded with sort of which way the causal arrow goes in all yeah. of that. And I wanted to help me unpack that a little bit. Well, I mean, it is a complicated question, but I think there's a role for Congress to push against the tendency of our politics to revel in division. Division is not new and partisanship is not new. It's true, we went through a period in the middle of the 20th century where there was much less of it in national politics. But if you looked in on America at any point in the 19th century, for example, even putting aside the, the 1860s, you would have found a country that's very unhappy with Congress, that's very divided, that's very partisan. But the purpose of the legislature in that system is to compel accommodation. Everything gets stuck if members of Congress don't work together and force one another to compromise some. We've, we've now gotten around that problem by empowering the executive. So the things don't get stuck, even if Congress doesn't work. And that means that Congress doesn't work. Uh, we count on the legislature in our system to compel compromise and accommodation. Congress is very different from European parliaments, whose purpose is really to empower transient majorities to govern while they have the majority until the public gets sick of them and votes them out. That's not how Congress works. Congress does not empower majorities to govern. Congress compels accommodation between different factions. And when it's not doing that, there is no institution in our system doing that. And I think that contributes to the partisanship we see. It contributes to the sense of dysfunction. Um, and so the arrow does point in both directions. I, I do think in a lot of ways, we, we're getting what the public wants, but our system isn't just there to give the public what it wants. Our system is there to enable our country to govern itself effectively. And that means that Congress sometimes has to resist public partisanship by being the place where agreements are reached. And at this point, it is not doing that effectively. You know, the fact that you have the audacity to say all this to my face, Yuval, is really just, it really <laughs> it's hurts. It's remote, you know, or it's, <laughs> I'm just talking to the internet. Um, so, well, first of all, I also think just that on something you said about the mid 20th century, I do tend to think we put on rose colored glasses when we look back. I say this as a foreign policy person about, oh, the, the bipartisan Cold War consensus. Well, if you actually examine the debates of the time, they were pretty fractious. Yeah. I mean, even the area that I've studied a lot, sort of the late 40s, early 50s, Eisenhower administration. I mean, you look at the, the campaign in 52. I mean, it totally destroyed the relationship between Truman and Eisenhower. Eisenhower had this dilemma with McCarthy, who's from my district, by the way. And though, and his biggest regret in his life was that he didn't defend George Marshall against McCarthy's attacks. But you read some of the speeches, for example, Eisenhower gave in Milwaukee. It could have been given by Joseph McCarthy. It was so intense. And so I just, I just tend to think we do yeah. look back on a certain part of the past and think, oh, everybody got along. And no, it, there always has been a, a lot of sparring in politics. However, and sorry to go on here. I, I think I've said this to you before. You know, for example, 
Wisconsin's most famous politician is, is Bob LaFollette, probably. Mm-hmm. And he had this, he led the anti-war movement when, before entry into World War I and tried to filibuster a lot of uh, Wilson's uh, bills that led us into the war. And he just got savaged for it. There was a point at which there was a rumor going around one of his senatorial colleagues was going to bring a gun to the House, to the Senate floor and shoot him. And I found myself thinking, well, at least, you know, we're not shooting each other on the Senate floor. But maybe it's because that debate back then actually mattered. In other words, they were having a legitimate debate about whether to go to war and the Congress could impede the president. Whereas in the present day, you know, we can say all we want, but oftentimes it's not, you know, we've actually surrendered war making power and other powers to the executive branch. So it's like what Kissinger said about academia. The fights are so intense because the stakes are so small. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. There are also a lot of ways in which we idealize that that period, especially mid-century, where there was less partisanship in Congress. But the larger society, you know, the fights over civil rights were much more intense than any of the arguments we've got now, not less. Um, and divisions in the country, I mean, the, you know, domestic terrorism at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s was unlike anything we, we've seen in our time, uh, you know, let alone political assassinations and God forbid the rest of, of what America saw in the late 1960s. Um, but I do think that one thing that characterized Congress in that period was a, a very dominant majority party for a very long time. Um, and there was this pattern for much of American history where Congress was basically defined by what the political scientists call a sun party and a moon party, a big majority party and a minority party that, that sort of orbits it at the edges and uh, things move along when the two parties kind of give each other something, but there's no question of who is really dominant. What we've seen in Congress for the last 30 years is two moon parties, two minority parties. Um, sometimes one of them is in charge but barely. And the other one always lives with the sense that it could take over next time if it does things right. And it's true. Uh, We've seen power switch over and over and over. And that also creates a sense that um, the institution is in an unstable place. Everybody's waiting for the next election rather than thinking about what they should be doing now. Um, And that too makes it pretty hard to govern. But you know, it's been that way for 30 years. So Congress should probably think about trying to organize itself in a way that makes that work, changing the budget process, changing some of the committee system in ways that accommodate the fact that there are basically two minority parties and they've got to find ways to actually deal with problems somehow. Well, let's dig into that a little bit in terms of how we fix this. My own view is that a lot of this uh, that we're dealing with is the unintended consequence of uh, well-intentioned reform efforts of the Watergate babies in the mid seventies. And certainly the budget, modern budget process dates to that. Maybe start with budget but you know if if you were king for a day you know and you could wave a wand and fix a few things about congress what do you think would actually be meaningful yeah i mean i do think that if you pass a rule that says all the reforms of the institution that passed between 1970 and 1980 are repealed you'd go a pretty long way to fixing the problem a lot was done wrong in that time and a lot of it was done wrong with good intentions um there was a desire to open up the institution to, to combat corruption. It seemed like the problem was overly comfortable, established uh, committee chairmen, particularly Southern Democratic committee chairmen, who just ran the institution in a way that nobody else was happy with in either party. And a lot of what was done was to disempower those chairmen. But in the process, the, the Congress disempowered the committees 
the committee system in their place empowered leaders in both houses and the, the opening up of uh, just total transparency at the same time as we have seen the budget process created in the mid-1970s basically to effectively fight the president um, has turned out to be a very bad fit for the kind of politics we have now. So if I start with budget, I, I think that the budget process really is at the center of what's wrong now. Now, I'm a former House Budget Committee staffer, so I hate the budget. Um, I think it's the, the, the way it's structured now where each house begins with a framework, each party basically in each house begins with a framework that's almost symbolic. It's gonna have very little to do with what ends up being appropriated and authorized. And just as a way to show how it's different from the other party, that's a bad idea. That, that is not a good way to spend Congress's time and energy. I think you should break that down. I would eliminate the, the barrier between authorization and appropriation and have Congress spend money by authorizing um, so that basically the, the process of authorization becomes much more significant. It matters what those committees do um, and it gives members a lot more to do. And you wouldn't have one big vote at the end of the year. You'd have a lot of small votes in an ongoing way so the Congress is basically legislating as it goes. I think we're capable of doing that now. It's possible still to maintain overall budget frameworks. Just technologically, it's much easier to keep track of what's going on and you don't need the overall budget. Um, and Congress shouldn't be trying to compete with the executive when it comes to consolidated process. Congress should be a legislature and a legislature works by taking modest steps incrementally and substantively, not by trying to manage the whole at one time. So I really would begin with major budget reform. So this would involve, if I'm extrapolating correctly, effectively collapsing the appropriations committees into the authorizing committees, which for the uninitiated would be a massive change. Yes. Uh, there's sort of two classes of citizens in Congress. There's appropriators and everybody else. I'm an authorizer, so I have my bias. I was yes. a staffer on an authorizing committee in the Senate where I spent about a year of my life uh, trying to restructure our entire aid uh, package to Egypt. And then the appropriators took one look at it and said, that's cute. We're going to go do our own thing. Uh, right. So I come in with certain biases, but talk a little bit about what, how radical of a shift that would be. It would be a very radical shift. I mean, the way Congress works now basically is that the, the authorizing committees create public programs. They basically establish paths for, for spending money and taking public action. But the appropriators are the ones who actually assign uh, dollar amounts and effectively therefore because we're not generally changing the structure of government every year the appropriators basically do Congress's work for it um, and what that means is that a lot of the authorizing work that most members do doesn't really matter very much and we've also reached a point now where appropriations is just done in one big fell swoop at the end of the year so that even the appropriators most of the time are not having much of an influence the subcommittees aren't really even writing appropriations bills I think if you if you collapse that distinction, and, and in a Congress without earmarks, that distinction doesn't really make a lot of sense because ultimately, supposedly, you're just going to spend the money on what the authorizers authorized. Otherwise, the system isn't working. Without earmarks, there's no purpose in having distinct processes for authorizing and appropriating. And if you break those down into one process, then the stakes are higher. And what the committees do really matters a lot. Um, you would, it, it would make sense to authorize much more regularly, to take smaller bites so that you can authorize a program, a policy, a response to something, 
and money goes along with it, you could still have overall budget constraints and frameworks. Um, and really what it would mean is that Congress would be back in the business of actually making law that matters uh, to a much greater degree than it is now. And that would take power away from the appropriators. It also would take power away from the leaders um, who ultimately now basically function by controlling the appropriations process, which is almost all that Congress does. So, you know, the only problem with my idea is that all of the people with power now would hate it. So obviously it would be very hard for it to happen. But I think that if we begin from the premise that Congress isn't working well and ask ourselves why, the answer tends to point in this kind of direction. But I've never understood. I mean, I get the natural instinct to jealously guard one's power. I mean, you say you see similar phenomena play out with every agency in the executive branch, et cetera, et cetera. However, I mean, you look at how difficult a job it is to be minority or majority leader, especially speaker. Would you not want to diffuse some of the responsibility for decision making to your members and democratize the process. I think it would actually allow you to manage your caucus better. I just feel like if people aren't bought in on the front end, there's a higher chance they're going to defect on the final legislation and then condemn you. And all of a sudden you got all of the conservative industrial complex and the progressive industrial complex condemning you for not being conservative enough or liberal enough. I actually think it would be in the interest of leadership if you could get them to sort of think long term to devolve power back to the committees. Uh, more than they have now. I, I think that's true, but the question is with leadership in the modern Congress, is, is their job to protect their members or is their job to empower their members? And I think the members themselves are not sure what they think about the answer to that question. So you can, <laughs> find, you can find a lot of people complaining that leaders don't let them do what they want, but then when they find themselves voting on something where their position is not popular, then they think, well, why are we voting on this? We're, you know, you, you, Republican senators now, we're in the majority. Why did we allow this vote? Now we look bad and it'll be used against us when we run. What happens when you allow the committees to have, exercise real power is Congress votes on a lot of uncomfortable things. And you really have to be at ease telling your constituents what you think and why. And I think a lot of members now have fallen out of that habit and they just want their leaders to protect them from hard votes. They want to be reelected, so they don't want to acknowledge to their voters that they have a view that isn't the voters' view. They don't want to take responsibility for things. There are obviously exceptions to that um, in both houses, but I think generally speaking, the leaders are, are in a very tough spot because they, th their members expect them to both let them do what they want and protect them from things they don't want. And you can't actually do both of those things. If you have real power at the member level of Congress, a lot of members are going to find themselves voting on bills where they're in an uncomfortable place and they just have to say, sorry, this is my opinion. This is my view. Do you think maybe to shift it outside of Congress, and I think this might be an area where we disagree, to what extent is this bound up in the financial incentives uh, through which most members of con Congress operate, both the immediate uh, need to raise money for reelection, but also the desire to make money off of their position, right? And either become a TV commentator or a lobbyist or both. Um, and therefore, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to piss off K Street. You don't want to piss off leadership because you could jeopardize your immediate fundraising ability and your ability to monetize your office later on. I think that's, I think that's part of the problem. Um, I probably do put less emphasis on the money question in Congress. Um, I think a lot of the other incentives are much more powerful. 
And when I hear people say, well, members are just doing this because this is where the money is, I tend to think, I don't know, the members I know don't really think about their job that way. Now, some people do, um, and some people do think about what their next job is when they're in Congress. But I think for a lot of members, they want to be successful, they want to be prominent, they want to be seen to be doing their job in the way their voters want, and the confusion is about what that is, what it would look like to be a successful member of Congress now. And it doesn't look like being a legislator. It doesn't look like being in the weeds on the details of governing issues. It looks much more like being a performer. Um, some of that obviously is tied up with campaign finance, but I guess I tend to think ultimately at the end of the day, the, the money isn't really the most fundamental issue in what's driving these incentives. And you similarly are not a, if I, if I remember correctly, you're not a term limits proponent. You think it is counterproductive. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I do. I think experience matters. And that if, if members don't have experience in how Congress works, then power is exercised by people who do have that experience, whether that's staff, whether that's lobbyists, some kind of permanent bureaucracy, you, you can't actually empower people who don't know what they're doing. And so the way to empower members of Congress is to help them know what they're doing rather than to make sure that none of them knows what they're doing and therefore the power really flows elsewhere. So I tend to think experience is a good thing. Or I'll put it this way, when I think about what members are constructive and which are not, I wouldn't say that I generally think that the members who are newest to the institution are best. Now I would exclude present company from that because you're interested in the institution in an unusual way. But generally speaking, um, I think experience can be a helpful thing for a legislator. So we're, we'll agree to disagree on the term limits question only because one, I don't like arguing with people that are smarter than me. And two, there's so many other topics to get into, but I think we, regardless of sort of the, the story you tell about how Congress is dysfunctional and why it's dysfunctional and which way all the different causalities point. I think most people would disagree that Congress it, would agree that Congress is dysfunctional. You obviously see this reflected in polling. Congress has an abysmal approval rating as an institution. Maybe take that as a way to kind of tell us a little bit about the work you've done on institutions, the crisis of trust in institutions we have in this country, and your latest book about how we can rebuild that trust in institutions. Well, I appreciate that. So I, Congress is one example of the way in which Americans have been losing confidence in their institutions, political institutions, but also uh, professional and academic and uh, civic and all kinds of institutions from top to bottom. For decades now, Americans have been losing their confidence and trust in those institutions. And part of what my work tries to do is ask why that is and what that means. And in this new book that came out a couple months ago called The Time to Build, um, I look at that question and try to think about what it actually means to say that we trust or don't trust an institution. And I think a key part of it, obviously part of it is that we think the institution is competent, capable. Um, but another part is that we think the institution is formative in a constructive way, that it creates an ethic internally that motivates its people to be trustworthy. Institutions unavoidably shape the people within them. And we trust them when they seem to shape those people to do their jobs in a trustworthy way. When it, they create a sense of integrity, a particular ethic that leads us to believe that the people in that institution or at the, at the head of that institution uh, believe in its mission and are reliable and trustworthy. And a lot of what we've seen over the last few decades in the way that people relate to institutions that they're part of 
is a move from what I would call thinking of the institution as a mold, as forming you, to thinking of it as a platform, as displaying you, giving you a, a stage to stand on and be seen. And in more and more of our institutions, we find people who basically think of those institutions as platforms for themselves to build their own brand. You see that in the professions. Think about what happens in journalism now. Journalism is a very powerful institution precisely because it can make claim on the public's trust by forming people's work in the way that, that gives you reason to believe it's reliable. But we now find a lot of journalists stepping out of that institutional framework, putting themselves on a platform on their own, on social media or cable television and building their own brand. A lot of members of Congress think that way about Congress. We have a president who thinks that way about the presidency. It's basically a very high stage to stand on and be another figure in our, uh, in, in our cultural theater. And you find that all over American institutional life now in ways that very powerfully contribute to the public's loss of trust. Here's, it's so interesting. I often say, you know, if I were rationally following the incentives as a member, a new member of Congress who wanted to have influence right now, I would spend all of my day trying to get on Fox News, yeah. throwing bombs on Twitter, even though most of my constituents aren't paying attention to Twitter, you're just picking fights with journalism and journalists and other members of Congress. I mean, that's where every, it's almost like as if the incentives are pushing everybody in the direction of being their own little media company. And I just, it's, it drives me crazy because I'm not good at that stuff. Um, and I also just think it's destructive to the institution at the end of the day. I think that's exactly right. And it encourages people to think of the institution in performative terms rather than in the case of Congress, maybe deliberative or just legislative terms. In a sense, you think of it as a place to stand and be seen by outsiders rather than as possessing some inside, some internal life of its own that can serve a purpose. And we see that in the academy, we see it in the professions, we see it all over politics. And so I think the fact that it's so widespread means that it speaks to some change in our broader set of expectations of what institutions are for and requires us to think differently about the institutions that we're part of. Or we have to ask ourselves, given the role that I have here, how should I be behaving? Rather than just, if I want attention, how should I be behaving? And let's put that in terms, in sort of basic terms for, you know, a Wisconsinite here in Northeast Wisconsin, right? Because you're not just talking about the obviously degraded institutions of Congress or the national media. I mean, I assume your argument, your book would be behind me were it not for the fact that it's in my office in DC, I swear. <laughs> I'll verify that too. Um, you know, maybe sort of build concentric circles in terms yeah. of the most immediate institution, which presumably would be your family, uh, you know, community, kind of what are the trends you see in the more from the ground up as opposed to Congress down? Yeah, I mean, I think concentric circles is the right way to think about it. The most important institution in any society is the family. And the family is a very formative institution. It shapes us more than any other. But even there, when you think about some of the arguments we have about family life in America now, a lot of those really are about family as a source of status or, or approval or affirmation um, for a way of life, more than family as fundamentally formative of the rising generation. <clears throat> we see in religious life and civic life, a lot of people trying to use institutions as platforms in the culture war, as ways to express what party they're in, rather than as ways of trying to shape one another to change people's souls and, uh, and, and affect their character. You find this, as I say, in professional life, where again, rather than constrain people by subjecting them to a standard, which is ultimately where institutions actually get their power, their, their authority, 
and where expertise comes from, we instead find institutions offering their members ways of being seen, of being prominent. In the academy, again, you see, there's now very little difference between, say, what happens at the New York Times and what happens at Brown University. They're both places to stand and yell about oppression, right? And in fact, neither of them should be that. But everything becomes that when we think of all our institutions as culture war arenas. And to push back against that, we've got to rethink of what it means to be involved in an institution at all. Do you have a master theory of why? I mean, if we accept that the family is, I don't know if collapsing is too strong of a word. It is in an unhealthy state at present. Do you have a master theory as to why that is or what variables are most important in that story? Obviously, it's a very, very hard question. A lot of people come at it in a lot of different ways. But I think that um, in part, what's happened over time as our society has emphasized individualism and choice um, in many good ways, um, we've seen the institutions that are hardest to understand in those terms that, have, that are least about choice and individuality um, suffer most in our, in our culture. And the family is not about choice. It's just not. Even though at the center of a lot of families is, uh, uh, is marriage, which obviously is a chosen institution, marriage is ultimately also about constraining your choices. And a lot of your other responsibilities and relationships in the family just aren't about choice at all. They're about responsibility. They're about obligation. They're formative in a different way. And that means that it's become harder for us to make the case for the family, even though, of course, a lot of us understand its importance um, in, in a kind of intrinsic, inherent way. The language by which we now justify our actions in American life makes it very hard to talk about the family. And so Americans just try not to talk about the family, except as a mode of affirming personal choices. We all know there's much more to it, but it becomes very hard for us to defend it and to assert its importance in the culture. And look, we've lived through decades now of, of the breakdown of family forms, um, of, of vastly increasing, um, of, of vast growth in out-of-wedlock births, which has slowed down some in the last decade, but is at levels that are just astronomical. Um, and to get back from this place to a healthier form of family life in America is going to require a different way of talking about what family does for us and why it matters. Do you, by the way, do you self-identify with any particular school of conservatism? Is there a label that you found you're most comfortable with? Reform conservatism? What would be? I guess so. I mean, reform conservatism, you know, it's, it's a label that's been applied to me and some other people. Uh, we didn't really come up with it. I would say we love it. Um, but it basically describes a kind of policy-minded social conservative. Uh, social conservatism that isn't just about the hot button issues, though those matter too, but um, is really about a way of thinking about the purpose of politics and the purpose of society that begins from the importance of character um, and, and, of, uh, and of virtue. But I'm a conservative. I'm just, a, I guess, maybe a Burkean conservative. Um, you know, I start from very low expectations of human beings. I think we're all broken and fallen. We need to be formed before we can be free. And then we need institutions that can sustain that freedom, which is very hard to do. And so that means I respect a lot of the inherited institutions of society that have done that for a long time. And I have a lot of skepticism about all kinds of claims to technical knowledge about social life. So I think society is very complicated uh, and unavoidably complicated. 
Well, I just, I guess, would be the best way to ask this? I, I think I've seen this in the pages of National Affairs, uh, perhaps more prominently, you've seen it recently in certain debates between, let's say, David French on the one hand and Sora Bamari on the other hand. I think all of these people overestimate the extent to which people are paying attention to yeah. these arcane debates, but nested within it is a real important question about the future of the conservative movement, such as it exists, the Republican Party. There's, you know, there's a cottage industry of books about, you know, whether Trumpism is a thing and whether that is the future of the Republican Party. I'd just be curious to get your take on those debates, where you might sit your, situate yourself within them and kind of what you see for the next decade. Uh, for yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think those debates are the latest form of an argument that has always been alive in the right in America, and that in some ways has has been conservatism itself since the end of the 18th century, uh, and and has been called conservatism in our country since about the middle of the 20th century. And that is, there's a tension between the desire for order and the desire for freedom, and those are both good things, though they are in tension. The question is. How do you handle the fact that these two essential goods are also intentioned? Some people emphasize the, 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 the freedom and liberty side of that and insist that ultimately the highest good is to enable people to make their own choices. Some people emphasize the order side of it, the fact that we need to be formed, that we need moral structure in order for us to be capable of freedom and trusted with freedom. I think they're both right. And there are times when our society needs to lean further in one direction, times when it needs to lean further in the other, in the other direction. And that the, the, the broad conservative coalition in uh, the politics of a free society consists of people who start out with a low opinion of human nature, with a sense that we do need some structures and institutions in order to allow us to be good. And that means that the purpose of, our, of the institutions of our society is formative. The left tends to begin from a much higher sense of human nature that says we're already free. The only reason we're not is that we're oppressed by these institutions. And so the purpose of politics is liberation. Um, I think the conservative coalition makes sense. And the fact that it includes both people who prioritize a kind of libertarianism and people who prioritize a kind of social conservatism makes sense too. Those are both valuable and, and essential. I am more of a social conservative, um, and you know, I, I I understand some of the complaints that someone like Sorbonne makes about a, a classical liberal order. But at the same time, I think that the only way to give people room and the opportunity to pursue the kind of virtue that Sorab and others want is in a liberal society that allows people to have a great degree of freedom and that allows for some moral diversity in our society because it's a diverse society. Um, so in that argument, I fall much closer to David French, who ultimately says that we need these institutions of freedom precisely in order to be virtuous people. I think if we gave government the kind of power over our moral lives that some of my friends on the right now want to give it, it would not be used in the way they hope it would be used. And there's a reason to be careful about power that we should never forget, even when we're in power. I once wrote an op-ed that I'd never published because my staff thought it was stupid uh, that was entitled The Boromir Fallacy, which was a reference to Lord of the Rings. And so Boromir's whole temptation is that he thinks he can use the ring for good. And I think that's, which of course it's sort of, it's naturally corrupting. It can't be used for good. And I think there's a, so I see a connection between what you just said and that. Yeah, my failed brilliant op-ed that will never see the light of day. <laughs> well, it's um, not too late. <laughs> um, 
Okay. So quickly, I, I wonder just to move on to kind of fun, some fun things. Um, could you maybe describe what is in your library uh, there? Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, um, basically, I'm I'm not allowed to bring books home anymore because there are too many books in our house. Um, so that <clears throat> I sort of have a library here and a library at the office at the American Enterprise Institute, um, where of course we're not allowed to go for the time being. What I've got here is, you know, it's basically what my University of Chicago education tells me you have to have around you in order to be a civilized person. So um, a fair amount of books on, uh, on, on Judaism and Christianity, followed by a fair number of books about Greek philosophy, um, some early moderns uh, among my favorites, uh, Bacon, Locke, Hume. Then there are a whole series of shelves on Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine. Uh, I wrote my dissertation about them and a book about them. Um, lots and lots of American history and uh, American political philosophy. And then, you know, a, a variety of books about science and society and uh, some, some, some great novels. Um, you know, it's a library. Uh, some of it is aspirational. Uh, nobody's read 100% of the books in their library. Yeah. But uh, it at least speaks of, of an aspiration to try to inform thinking about politics by looking at the roots of how we live. I just had a conversation with him and he said he suggested because I, I have this theory that when I get to uh, 40, four years from now, I'm going to stop adding books to my library and for every new one I have to remove. And he said, no, there's a concept that I think Nassim Taleb came up with, which is that of an anti-library where you need sort of a collection of books that you haven't read but you can go to should the occasion demand it. So let's presume I had a bunch of unread books about, you know, uh, pandemics and our pharmaceutical dependency on China. Now would be a good time. I could go to yeah. my anti-library and pull them out. Uh, <laughs> I was glad to see that you did say you have novels, so you do make time to read fiction. I do. I should, I should do that more. I definitely uh, have a, 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 a a problem in how I read, which is I incline to a certain kind of uh, broadly politically inclined nonfiction, and I don't read enough uh, great fiction, but I try. How do you limit the amount of information you take in? I mean, there's so many. What's your engagement with Twitter? You yeah. know, do you limit the amount of journals you read? I mean, you can quickly get paralyzed by the amount of information analysis that's out there. So I, I basically have no engagement with Twitter at all. I'm not on Twitter myself. Um, you know, if someone sends me a link for something I ought to see, then I, then I see it. But uh, generally speaking, I don't spend any time on Twitter. Very little time on other social media. Um, and, you know, that's not all good. I mean, that means you miss some things, but uh, I think eventually it, it all catches up with you. Um, I do try to read a lot of journals. I try to read, uh, you know, the, the opinion world that I'm part of. You can't really be part of it if you're not keeping up with it. Um, but I also do try to stay engaged with books. I think there's just something important about um, really sitting down with a book, whether that's a new book or a classic, and spending time immersing yourself in it. Um, I do some of that reading electronically on Kindle, but uh, more of it than not uh, with an actual book that you actually got to open and mark the pages and there's nothing like it. I am anti-Kindle, though I now use it to screen books that I decide whether or not to buy because you can get a lot of these on this yeah. called Libby, but it just, it, it doesn't do it for me. Um, what about, so how deliberate are you about your writing process? Are you, you, know, you wake up every day, you have to you know, put an hour in the salt mines kind of person, or are you more of a wait for the muse to strike you and say, 
this is this is what thou shalt write. Yeah, no, I try to be a little bit more uh, mundane and professional about it. I have to write a lot, and that means you can't really just sit around and wait. Um, and I've found that the best way to get going is just to get going. Um, it doesn't always work out. Sometimes it turns out I just don't have anything to say where I thought I did. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, more often than not, just getting started. Uh, I do outline some before writing something uh, reasonably long, but uh, just going and seeing what there is there and then working with it. Um, it's always been for me the, the way to get work done. Okay, we're gonna go lowbrow before we end on a, a serious question. So for those who might look at your work and think, my gosh, this guy just sits in a tank and thinks all day and writes constantly with Spartan prose and Vulcan logic, does Yuvalovin ever have fun? Is there a, a sort of Netflix movie part of this information diet that you're more <laughs> uh, hesitant to share? Yes. So sure. Uh, well, first of all, I have a, I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, so I have a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, we're all stuck home together now. So, and, and obviously that's not always fun. The reason is far from fun, but I, I play catch for about two hours a day now and uh, there's nothing better. Um, beyond that, and I also watch a lot of terrible television because of them and really older kids and tween TV is like the worst product our civilization has ever produced. Um, it is possibly worse than pornography. Um, beyond that though, you know, yeah, there's Netflix, there's, uh, there, there's the usual stuff. Uh, my wife and I try to kind of watch what's out there and, uh, we watch a lot of terrible British television and, has anything, since you've been shut in in this crisis, have you developed any particular obsessions? A lot of people are watching Tiger King, for example, right now. We haven't done that. We're both kind of Star Trek nuts, and so we've watched Picard, which was a lot better than I thought it would be. Oh, wow. Uh, I had very low expectations, to, 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 to be clear, but it was pretty good. Uh, we've just finished it up or this season. Um, and otherwise, you know, we're... We, we sort of net, let uh, Netflix lead us where it will, and it means you watch a lot of terrible stuff, but now and then there's great, uh, there's great things to see. So let's kind of end on a, on a serious note. You, you mentioned some of your intellectual heroes or companions, whether it's Burke, whether it's Payne, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what about just in terms of your actual career mentors? How big of a role have they played? Who were, was your kind of the naval term yeah. is sea daddy? Um, you know, uh, talk, to, talk to us a little bit about how, what role mentorship has played in your career. Yeah, I mean, without question, first and foremost is Leon Cass, who was my teacher at the University of Chicago. And then I worked for him when he came to uh, work in Washington as an advisor to President Bush on, on bioethics issues. Um, and I've, I'm just, I'm his student. I've been his student from the moment I met him and I'm still uh, as much as ever um, his student. He's a model for me in, in how to write, how to think, what to think about, um, how to behave as a kind of public thinker uh, and just an extraordinary figure. I mean, I really recommend to everybody. Um, you know, he's written an amazing range of things, but I would say a couple of things to look at. A, a wonderful book called The Beginning of Wisdom, which is actually a reading of the book of Genesis, um, in a philosophical way that's really extraordinary. Um, his writings on science and society, um, and in some ways the most interesting, the, the deepest of his books is actually a book about eating called The Hungry Soul. What, are, what the habits and practices and norms around eating tell us about the human person. It's an extraordinary kind of exercise in applying philosophical frameworks to uh, human experience. And he's just a great teacher uh, and a great human being. So more than anybody else, I would say, uh, he's been my mentor. 
That's phenomenal. Okay. So final question. You, let's say you find yourself in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, you walk into a bar as people in Green Bay, Wisconsin are, well, yes. as, as they do. Uh, actually, every year there's a ranking of the 10 drunkest cities in America and seven of the top 10 are in Wisconsin and two of the top three are in Northeast Wisconsin. Um, that's a subject for another podcast. Uh, and a, you know, a, a high school kid who's in the bar only because it's legal to be there with your parents in Wisconsin comes up to you and says, you've all, I'm a huge fan of your work. I love everything you're doing. You know, I'm thinking about pursuing a career in policy. Uh, I'd love to be a public intellectual and a writer. What advice would you give that young kid from Northeast Wisconsin besides get out of the bar and go back to school? Right. Well, um, you know, I think that maybe the most important thing to say is that experience really matters. Um, policy work is, generally speaking, not really book work. Uh, you have to have some expertise. You have to know what you're, what you're working on. But I think that working in government, in and around government, but really in government, um, whether that's in Congress or in the executive branch, is, is really absolutely irreplaceable as a way to uh, enable yourself to function in this, in this sphere. Um, a lot of what policymaking is about requires knowing what's doable and how things get done in the institutions of government. So that for me, having, having worked as a congressional staffer, having worked the White House and, and in an executive agency, matters a lot more than the formal education I might have had um, and a lot more really than anything else could. And I would say you have to be a specialist in something before people will let you be a generalist. Everybody wants to be a generalist and uh, it can be fun, but before you can be taken seriously, you've got to show that you actually understand what you're talking about. And um, I would say when I talk to younger people who want to get involved in this world, the biggest, the biggest sort of vice that has to be corrected is the tendency to just want to jump in and be a writer and, and do opinion writing on everything and anything. Uh, I would say first and foremost, be a practitioner and get to know a subject that matters, especially to you. That is great advice to end on. Yuval in. thank you. Where can uh, the tens of listeners I have get your book <laughs> if they want it? Well, you can get the book on Amazon. Uh, you can find uh, everything I'm doing at the American Enterprise Institute, AI.org. And not just what I'm doing, but a lot of great work by a lot of great people. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and for making us all think. Thank you very much.